is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexpected. News for the Soul is now in its 25th year of broadcasting. Tune in live or visit the archives at newsforthesoul.com. That's newsforthesoul.com. Next on News for the Soul, Light Body Healing with Dr. Lara. Dr. Lara is a functional medicine health coach, an advanced practice clinical pharmacist specialist, master intuitive healer and channel, and international teacher and speaker on a mission to empower you to take an active role in your healing journey to achieve holistic health mastery of the mind, body, and spirit. Dr. Lara combines energy medicine with functional medicine to facilitate healing at the root level. Call in now to speak with Dr. Lara today. 646-595-4274 646-595-4274 Please welcome Dr. Lara back to News for the Soul. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to Light Body Radio today. I'm your host Dr. Lara May and today we have with us David Greenwald. David is a certified health coach, fitness expert, author, husband, father, former police officer, and former competitive state-level bodybuilder. And at age 32, with a body weight of 235 pounds, he used an evidence-based approach for getting off his own excess 50 pounds, and he's kept it off for 25 years and counting. Since 1999, Through his company, Leanness Lifestyles University, David has been helping student members from every walks of life lose excessive fat, keep the muscle, and manage this crazy lifestyle. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. So um, without further ado, let's just hop right on in. We are going to be talking about the obesity epidemic that's facing um, much of the Western world, the United States definitely, but I would say um, it really affects the whole Western world, don't you think? I do. You know, I think, uh, you know, most developed countries are having an issue with it. The United States just happens to be leading. Yes, unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately, right. Yeah. Um, So I would like to start off by just giving our audience a definition, so a parameter of what obesity is. And with that, just specifically speaking of like BMI, which is the body mass index, which is based on your your um, height, your weight, and your age, right? Not your age. Your BMI is just your height and weight. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Body mass yeah. index BMI <laughs> is just, uh, in, the, in the United States anyway, uh, it is weight in pounds divided by height in inches squared times 703. So it is just a mathematical formula. And, um, yeah. and from that formula, there are various uh, categories, everything from underweight to what's called normal or healthy weight, and then overweight, and then obese. And so, um, yeah, there are metrics that, um, that kind of, stratify uh, the populations and gives us a, a quick kind of uh, snap view of where the person is with regard to their, or you can call it either fatness or leanness, whichever way you'd like to say it. Mm-hmm. And so the cutoff for obesity is a BMI of 30 or higher. Correct. Um, one is classified as obese if that BMI is 30 or greater. They're actually 
uh, three classes of obesity, sometimes four depending on the source, but three for sure. Uh, class one obesity is a BMI of 30 to 34.9. Class two is 35 to 39.9. And class three is 40 and up. And is, class three is also referred to as morbidly obese. And also, before we get into the nitty-gritty um, of, of everything we're going to talk about today, I just also want to say that this has nothing to do with uh, body shaming or the um, body positivity movement. Obesity is a um, really a medical crisis, a metabolic crisis, and the consequences of living in a state of obesity are quite severe, especially over the long term. And it, so this is in no way, shape or form, you know, judging anyone that is obese or even overweight. We can still be in a place of self-love and love ourselves no matter what weight we are, but just starting to get to that point of recognition that if we're living in a state of being overweight and especially obese, then we're at much higher risk for many, many disease states and health complications and having a much harder time growing older. And even, you know, being obese will really shorten your lifespan. Um, so I just want to say that up front, too. Yeah, so, you know, so, just in addition to that, just kind of tack piggybacking on that, what I would say is it's in my, in my mind when I say or think of the word obesity, it's like saying someone is hypertensive. Right. You know, I'm not calling someone a name when I say you're hypertensive. Yeah, I'm not calling someone right. a name or, or, or judging them when I say you're hyperglycemic. You know? Right. Um, yeah. Those are just kind of medical classifications, and that's, that's how, I, how I view it. So it's just total agreement with what you said. It's just a, a way that I frame it in my mind and try to, you know, explain it um, because it really is, it really is how, I, how I look at it. Yeah, and, you know, just since we're on this medical end of it at the moment, um, usually, you know, if someone is living in a state of obesity, they may or may not have diabetes, type 2 diabetes. They may or may not have some respiratory issues. Um, a lot of times if we're living in a state of obesity, we might have sleep apnea because of the weight of our body when we lay down actually affects how we breathe and how we move oxygen through the body. So it can even, you know, have effects that goes even into more like brain health. You know, if we're not oxygenating properly, then our brain isn't functioning properly. Not to mention our joint health. What does all that extra weight do to our joints over time? So um, it's not an isolated, it's not something that just exists in a vacuum and it just is one thing on unto itself. It has a definition, but it usually it becomes a very complicated picture. And so today our goal is to provide information and resources and hope. And I want this to also be, you know, a positive conversation about um, what we can do about it. So what can we do about it? <laughs> yeah, fortunately, you know, I'm with you. We can do a lot. Um, yeah. The, the messaging that's been put out over the last 50 or so years has been inaccurate, uh, inadequate, and hasn't worked. I mean, is you know, you've had other guests on. I know that this is is, is in the forefront of, of one of the things that you focus on, obesity. 
But, you know, obesity is sitting at 43% in the United States. It was at 15% in 1970, and it's supposed to be 50% by 2030. So that's kind of where it's, where it's been, where it's at, and, and where it's projected to go. Um, I don't see anything that, that tells me in any way, shape, or form that we're not going to be 50% obese by 2030. So that's, you know, again, that's the negative. But, you know, that's I say that because it's important to recognize that the messaging that has been for the last 50 or so years hasn't worked. So, mm-hmm. But I am encouraged. I'm really encouraged, and I'm really positive because when the right information is tied to the right support, this can be won. Um, it's not going to be one on uh, telling someone to eat less and exercise more. It's not going to be one by saying calories in, calories out, personal responsibility, mm-hmm. now go to it and run along. That's not going to work. It's not going to be one by moderation in all things. Um, that's the messaging that has been put out, you know, for the last 50 years. And, of course, there's more to it, but that's, that's just kind of a synopsis of messaging that hasn't worked. And then you just – You've got a huge continuum, everything from charlatans in, in my industry to um, big money feeding, you know, American Academy of Dietetics and big food and politicians and on and on and on. And with profit as the primary motive, uh, the messaging just gets really, really muddy and inaccurate. But, as I said, coming back to, so what can be done? A lot. This can be one. So, you know, what would you, you know, kind of what angle or what, where would you like me to start as far as, you know, that uh, kind of message of real, beyond hope, um, this really, truly can be won? Uh, Let's start with willpower, because I think that is a big misnomer in general. I think willpower is very misunderstood. Um, So let's start there. What's, What's your opinion on willpower? So where I, where I am with willpower is this. My, my kind of working definition of willpower is the ability to do what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, whether you feel like it or not. And so that's kind of where I start. And so what drives that? Um, and what's going on in the, in the average person with that? Do people have it? Do they not have it? Are they, are they short on it? Um, people do have willpower. But willpower is always dry, driven by why power. So as an example, you know, poll your audience. I've polled my students for a long time now. uh, Just for anyone listening, um, when was the last time, if you worked for someone else, that you were late for work? Most people are going to say rarely or never. Well, that takes willpower to do that. It takes willpower to go to work consistently and to be there on time. You know, we don't always go to work when we're happy. We don't always go to work when we're in a good mood. We've got kids that kept us up all night, we've got life stressors, we've got loss, death, you name it. All the things that happen in life happen, and we still go to work and we're there on time. Why? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the answer. Because our why for keeping the job, for keeping a vocation, for earning a living, and for all of the positive benefits that doing a profession, whatever it may be, give to us, the why is so strong, we will do it even though all of those factors could be true on any given day. The same could be said just as another example for anyone listening who may have small children who still have to be picked up from school or picked up from soccer practice. When was the last time you just left your child there and said, eh, you know, I just don't feel like it. Not in the Mm -hmm. mood today. I'm tired. I'm sick. 
I had an argument with my spouse and I'm really frustrated. The boss had this information for me and didn't like my report and da-da-da, whatever the case may be. All the stuff of life, we are there for our kids. We pick them up. We don't miss. And the thought of missing and leaving them there, you know, from 3 p.m. till 5 p.m., oops, two hours have gone by, is just mortifying. Why? Why will we do it no matter what? Because our why for doing that task, which let's face it, you know, my kids are all grown and out of the home, 28 to 33 years of age. But I remember, and I've got a lot of clients who have small kids, we don't always want to go pick them up. We want it. We love our kids. We'll do anything for them. Do we want to in the moment always go do it? No. No, we don't. But we do because our why driving the willpower um, is so strong, we will do it. Anyone who's accomplished a high level or a degree of any kind, your degree, Doc, that took incredible willpower. That took incredible sacrifice and hard work and maybe some sleeplessness, maybe a lot of <laughs> sleeplessness. It took mm-hmm. a lot to get the mm-hmm. degree, but you were willing to do it. Why? Again, that's the answer, because your why was so strong for wanting to get your farm D that you did what needed to be done when it needed to be done, whether you felt like it or not. So it just goes on and on and on. People have willpower galore if their why is strong enough. So that's, yeah, that's, I, that's really fascinating. And so why don't we have that why when it comes to our health? And I'm sure, you know, all practitioners ask themselves this every day as they, you know, try to come up with creative ways to help their patients and their clients. Um, You know, I think there's, there's a, there, there's different pieces to this equation of obesity and food is an aspect. Willpower is an aspect. Hormones are an aspect. uh, Stress is an aspect. The why, like you said, is an aspect. So how do we start to, like, fill in those pieces of the equation to get the ultimate solution of losing weight and keeping it off consistently? It's it's a great question. Let me address that why question. But let me say that we we function at Lean's Lifestyle University on essentially five pillars, nutrition, exercise, why power, driving willpower, um, addiction or compulsive eating and emotional fitness. So those are the pr- those are the major areas that each of those have many spokes in the wheel: nutrition, exercise, why power, compulsive eating or addiction, and emotional fitness. So right now we're just talking about the why. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question you have. So if why is so incredibly important, why don't people put more into it? Because weight loss. Let me. When I first really got into coaching people on a mass scale. Doc, it was in 1997, 1998, 1999, right in there. And I had a, 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 I had a different fitness business. I had tens of thousands of, of customers. And the Internet was just coming in, and it, people would email me. And the email was just brand new. And they would say, Dave, they knew I had done bodybuilding and powerlifting. They knew I had gotten down to 5% body fat. They knew I would bulked up to 235 and gotten lean, gotten bulky, gotten lean. And I would written about it. I had my nose buried and peer-reviewed research all the time, and I wrote a newsletter so people trusted me. And they were asking me this question when email first came out. Hey, Dave, if you could, real quick, no big deal, don't want to take too much of your time, 
just when you get a moment. If you could just tell me how I could lose 30 pounds and keep it off forever. And, you know, that's how it's thought of. Mm-hmm. It's no big deal. It's just, I just want to lose some weight. It shouldn't be that hard. It's minimized. It's minimized, Dr. May. It's minimized. And so why don't they put more effort into the why? Because they don't think they need it. Another thing is they don't, not enough people have talked about it. I wrote about it in my book in 1999. I said, goals are great, but you better know why. And I had an entire section on the why. Now, since then, many others have talked about why, but still there's not enough focus on it. And there's certainly not enough importance put on it by people who are interested in doing what I just said, lose 30 pounds, keep it off forever, or lose 150 pounds and keep it off forever. We are in an incredibly obesogenic environment. It's so obesogenic that we have to take these factors, the why being one of them, much more seriously than people think they're going to have to do. So we have to put a greater focus on creating the why. We have to move beyond, hey, why do you want to lose 30 pounds, keep it off? Eh, you know, I just, I just think I'd feel better. I'd just like to have a little more energy. I'm sorry. That's probably not going to work. That's just probably not enough. And we're going to have to drill down deep and see what's really the motive, what are the motivators for you, which we'll call your why, to be able to do the work that's going to be necessary, to be able to do what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, whether you feel like it or not. And so that's my answer on why aren't more people, you know, focused on the why, why, why aren't the why strong enough, because, because this entire process is minimized as a, eh, you know, I'd like to lose 30 pounds or 50 pounds or 70 pounds or whatever it is. And it shouldn't be that hard. I mean, it's just weight loss. But in our environment that we're living in, the incredible obesogenic, obesogenic, just a big word meaning all uh, factors that contribute to behaviors that support obesity. And there are so many factors that are obesogenic Mm -hmm. that support obesity. So many external and internal factors working against us um, that we have to have these elements, these pillars that I've talked about, really strong, really secure uh, to counter those obesogenic forces. We can. It absolutely is possible. Anyone listening, I don't care what your history is, I don't care what background you came from, don't care what your genetics are, hormones or anything else, you can get to any healthy weight you want, and you can live there plus minus five-ish or whatever for life. Yes, I'm so glad you you defined obesogenic too, and just So we have a bigger idea of that. So people have an understanding of how big that concept is, meaning like all the plastics that we're exposed to, all of the, you know, toxic chemicals that we're exposed to that we might even not, that we might even not be aware of that we're being exposed to. So whether it's, you know, phthalates, toxic heavy metals, you know, again, um, these things that um, instigate hormone stimulation in our body that's not natural, so exogenous hormones, and then our body also responding to that in, in a certain way that is instigating us holding on to weight. So again, it's so complicated. And those things that I just mentioned have nothing even to do with food, but they factor in to our body 
holding on to weight and not being readily able to let it go. And so there's that factor, which is also why I'm such a big proponent of seasonal detoxing and giving our body that break and releasing the toxic burden as much as we can on a regular basis. But then also, too, I think there's a big aspect here that we don't talk about enough, like when you said, oh, it's just 30 pounds, it's no big deal, or it's no big deal, I just need to lose some weight. But it is a big deal because we attach our self-esteem, we attach self-judgment, we, you know, like maybe don't have an ounce of self-love. And I feel like that, and, and I know you've mentioned this as one of your pillars, as you called it emotional fitness. But I think that's a huge aspect of this, too, is that you're right, we blow it off, but I, we're, I think it's because we're also taught to, you know, like this is also part of that messaging that you referred to earlier of the messaging of, you know, from, you know, Western medicine, big food, big pharma, all the things and all the role players here is that it's important, but it's really not that hard, so it shouldn't be such a big deal. But it's not that simple, right? It's much more um, complicated and tied into our emotions, don't you think? It, it absolutely is. And, you know, one of the reasons uh, that it gives um, oversimplified in people's minds is because of part of the messaging that I mentioned before, which is, listen, you know, I can scream from the top of the tallest building in your city that you're in and just get a bullhorn and just scream, eat less and exercise more eat less and exercise more. And everybody looks up and, you know, goes, yeah, I know. That's it. That's the whole ball of wax right there. And that's what I mean about the messaging. That's mm-hmm. basically the beginning and end for a lot of people. I know. I know. what I, Hey, Dave, I know what I need to do. I just need to do it. Just, you know what? You can just give me the seven-day diet real quick um, and give me the exercise plan, a little bit of accountability. I should be good to go, right? No. Because... It isn't just eat less and exercise more. Yes, mathematically, none of us gets to violate the laws of thermodynamics. Yes, I can, if I know your age, gender, activity level, uh, general uh, body composition, you know, muscle mass and so forth, and, uh, we look at muscle and fat and water and all that, I can use calculations to determine your total daily energy expenditure pretty closely. From that, I can tell you calorically, how much energy from calories you need to take in to maintain, how many calories you need to take in to gain, and how many calories you need to take in to lose, and and to lose how much. In a a five- or six-week period, if you were a robot, I could tell you within a couple hundred calories probably, 300 at the most it might be off, what you'll need to lose five or six pounds or whatever the goal is in five or six weeks. I could tell you what it's going to be. And if you were a robot and you did that, you would be – that five or six pounds lighter in five or six weeks. The issue issues stem from the behavioral side, the consistency side, the compliance side. Um, and so it isn't just eat less and exercise more. It is on paper. It is mathematically. Calories are king, but they're not the only thing. But they are king. Don't let anyone tell you that calories don't matter. They do. In fact, they're king but they are not the only thing. There's a number of other factors that go into how do we do these things? How do we keep our nutrition and activity um, on the consistent straight and narrow so that 
we have some room to be imperfect and still succeed. Um, it can be done. But it can't be done with the oversimplified message. Uh, people come at it from that. So often it is that I know what to do, I just need to do it. And my pushback is you don't know what to do, so you can't just do it. Yeah. Um, so let's move from here into another variable with calories yeah. in, calories out, you know, not so simple, like simple but not so simple. And now we throw in a little bit of food addiction, you know, maybe some emotional highs and lows, you know, soothing with food, all those good things. Right. So here's the thing. Um, food addiction does exist, except it's really not food addiction. It's ultra-processed food addiction or processed food addiction. Um, we're not addicted to real food. And it's really important that people begin to s distinguish real food from processed, ultra-processed food. Now, there's going to be some processing even with real food because we've got to get it off the plant. We've got to get it out of the animal, so on and so forth, before we can eat it. So it takes some processing for that to occur. But once it reaches that level of ultra-processed, everything changes. And so... If we're addicted, and not everybody is, but a much higher percentage of people are addicted or at least a compulsive overeater, and there's a continuum on, there's a continuum on the compulsive overeating spectrum, you know, user, abuser, addict. Um, but it doesn't really matter so much where you are on the continuum because really the prescription is um, quite similar. But... You know, something I'll say is, which at least people can, you know, kind of in their mind say, what's he talking about? You know, what do you mean addict? you can't be addicted to real food, but you can be, you can for sure be addicted to ultra-processed food. Well, no one's addicted to chicken breast and broccoli. No one, literally no one is addicted to chicken breast and broccoli. Those two things mm -hmm. are real food. They might be on the extreme end, you know, someone sort of thinks in their mind, you know, and I don't blame them, they... They're thinking, oh, my God, you know, a boiled chicken breast, no seasoning, and plain steamed broccoli. You know, I mean, I get it. Um, <laughs> but the, so, yeah, no, but if you think about it, no one's addicted to real food. If they're addicted, they're addicted to ultra-processed food. And they definitely are far more often than any of the current research is indicating, although the research is slowly starting to catch up, and definitely more than any of the higher institutions of education, governmental bodies, so on and so forth, are, 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 are saying. Um, Ultra-processed foods are nasty and addictive. They, they absolutely are. They hijack the brain, hijack neurochemistry, neurotransmitters. They cloud thinking. They impair judgment, cognition, um, and they get you thinking that you can't survive without it. Um, big food has a goal, which is profit, and, and to do that, they create substances that are addictive, substances that when we eat them, they light up our brain with a dopamine hit, which at a minimum tells us that this is something that we want to repeat. This was good. It makes, the eyes, makes our eyes roll back in our head. Oh, my God, it's so good. I'm gonna, I've got to do this again. Lay's potato chips wasn't kidding decades ago when they said, I bet you can't eat just one. And that's mm -hmm. just been perpetuated. And it's grown. It's grown to whatever measure. I, I, I'll say immeasurably, but it's grown unbelievably in the last 50 years and uh, definitely in the, over the last 20 or 30 even more. So 
um, you know, big food wants to create these food-like substances with a bliss point. Uh, people will say, yeah, it's the perfect combination of sugar, salt, and fat. That's the bliss point. Beyond sugar, salt, and fat, the industrial chemicals for mouthfeel, taste, texture, flavoring, you name it, that, again, does what? Creates users rather than consumers. And I don't hedge on that terminology. As addicts, we, we are users rather than consumers. Mm-hmm. As users, it is not a simple matter of just, eh, I'll have it or I won't. I mean, let's face it. Let's go back to the chicken breast and broccoli. You, you're just making a decision on that. You'll have it or you won't. You're a consumer when it comes to chicken breast and broccoli or most things that are real food. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are substance abusers when it comes to ultra-processed food. They aren't aware of it. It's not their fault. It's, been, again, another thing that's been minimized, um, underplayed, undervalued, underrecognized, and it's not a wonder that people are having a hard time just, quote, eating less and exercising more. Yeah, I mean, when we went through all the trials and investigations and finally, you know, everyone came out and said, you know, it's, it was these t- cigarettes that were causing all this, you know, cancer, disease, all these things. I hopefully one day we'll get that with big food as well, because these are companies that have labs that, like you said, all they do is in a lab, they figure out chemically what it is that will make it most palatable, have that bliss point, all those things. It's a lab created food. It is not real food. And it creates addicts, but it also creates a population that's extremely unhealthy. And, and the, thing, the thing that's so interesting to me is that big food has such a big lobby, and yet we spend, just on the governmental side, not even the private sector side, so much money on healthcare in this country that if we just held the food companies accountable and took so much of this crap off the shelves and so it was just no longer available, I feel like that in and of itself would solve a lot of these, you know, this, I feel like we're on a merry-go-round. So <laughs> especially yeah, you know, uh... when, I, when I go to work in the hospital and I see, you know, some, some of the same patients rotate through my door every other month with, you know, being in um, a diabetic crisis or hypertensive crisis or whatever it is that was really brought on by their food and lifestyle. Absolutely. You know, and the thing is, is that in no way, shape, or form should we wait for the top-down approach. That's kind of what, you know, I would reference where, you know, finally policy and da-da-da-da-da and whatever has dictated the big food can no longer blah, blah, blah. Um, We can't wait for that. Uh, no. We'll all be in our graves before that happens. And the reason is, is that there's just too much money. Every single piece of this has so much money flowing in the wrong direction in support of this keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, keep profits in, going in this way. So where's, uh, you know, I really am a positively focused person. I said, with all of this going on, where I'm going to paint it as it is, which isn't positive, but but when it's addressed appropriately with uh, the pillars that I'm talking about, and, it, and we become more educated and aware with strategies to support this awareness, like what do we actually do, this can be one. 
but it's going to be a bottom-up approach. You know, we're already seeing it to at least some degree where because of shows like yours, because of little companies like mine, because of people that are preaching the message of real food, at least at a minimum, um, more and more people are demanding it. It is We're nowhere near where we need to be societally to really put a dent in the obesity uh, the obesity crisis. However, um, companies are, are making changes. They are hearing, we don't want the industrial additives, um, blah, 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 put into mm-hmm. uh, the food. And so what happens? People don't buy it. What happens? The companies go, profit, profit, profit. We've got to change. And some are, and there is more recognition, and there is at least some positive change occurring. But here's the thing. Even though societally, I do think that you and I will be long gone before a top-down, quote-unquote, solution has arrived, which if ever, I do 100% know that at the individual level, each person listening, you and I, we can take control over our own lives, and we can win this without waiting for anyone to save us. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's <laughs> <win>. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, but it, and it, yeah, but I really am like emotive. I'm in, so enthusiastic that way, and I really am more positively focused now than I was even when I started this. You know, I've been coaching people virtually since 1999. I've been coaching people in person to some in some form or fashion since 1987. And even though we've got all of these factors, you know, where the deck is in, in many ways stacked against us, um, I'm positive um, and really hopeful that with the right knowledge, the right tools, the right strategies, and the right support, I, I just see it so often with, with my clients. And there are so many light bulbs that go on where they quit blaming themselves. Look, the messaging that has promoted calories in, calories out, eat less, exercise more, and and let me be clear on that. Again, the math is the math. Calories are king, but they're not the only thing. But what happens is it's that minimization. It gets minimized in people's minds that this should be just no big deal. I know, I know. Just need to eat a little healthier. Just take the stairs instead of the elevator. All right? I know. No, not it. I mean, that's part of it. But how? In what way? Eating what? How much? In what way? In what circumstance? How do you do it in the real world? How do you do it in your life with all that you have going on in your life? So if we take it and we, and we apply the seriousness that it is and that it's going to take, we can actually, we can have fun doing it. We really can. It's going to be work but we can have fun doing it. We can remove that stigma. We can remove the blame and the blaming ourselves and going, oh, my gosh, I didn't know. You know, my clients so often, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that this stuff, you know, I, I refer to it a number of ways, food-like substance, ultra-processed food, Franken-food. But if it's a Franken-food, it's like Frankenstein's monster, maybe good intentions, but this was created in a lab and we get unintended consequences from this garbage. They didn't know. Once they know, once they know, it's the forewarned is forearmed. They're like, 
okay. It doesn't mean they're all of a sudden just going to flip a light switch and be like, well, I guess that's it, never having a cookie again, which I don't promote, by the way. This isn't about never having anything that tastes good ever again. It's about personalizing it so that, because here's the thing on moderation, moderation in all things. Yeah, moderation in all things, including moderation. Sometimes, for a number of people, in certain situations, maybe at a certain time of day, at a certain location, maybe in the vicinity of a certain emotional event, certain ultra-processed foods may need to go to zero. Because sometimes zero is better than one. So moderation in all things is a false narrative. But that's what's pitched. And the people go, well, what's it going to hurt? may not hurt at all. Then again, it may be the reason that you haven't been successful. Right, because isn't it usually it's that, I think, you know, we're on today is February 2nd. And so we've, we're, you know, barely into a new year. We're sort of still in that season of New Year's resolutions, or maybe we're already at the point where people have given up on them already. And, um, you know, I heard a client even tell me this story uh, last week. Oh, I made it 21 days, and then I went to a wedding. And since then, I just haven't been able to get back on track. I've literally been back to everything I was before the tw- my 21-day commitment to myself. And so, like you said, like, yes, moderation, this is not about living a life of um, depravity, but at the same time, if you're on a good roll and you're being successful, you have to ask yourself, is having this one piece of cake or one cookie or whatever it is going to completely throw me off? Or is it something that I can have once and then come back to my plan? And I think, True. you know, just bring, bringing in those, that uh, awareness and intention is, is a big first step for people, too, because we're so used to the yo-yo that once we fall off, we're like, oh, why bother? Here I am again. If you talk to, and I don't know if you have, you, maybe you have, but if you talk to true, um, even authors of, of uh, food addiction, you know, one of the, a person that really changed my view 20-some years ago, I interviewed on a, on a kind of a show like this that I was doing back then. Um, her name was Kay Shepard. She's the author of uh, From the First Bite and, a, and another book on food addiction. She's also a food addict um, her, herself. It, it's very, she's very open and public about it, obviously. She writes about it in her book. She runs uh, an inpatient service and has for 20-some years truly an expert when it comes to food addiction. And there are a number of experts in the field now, but, but as someone who lives it and is it and has, you know, suffered from it and recovered from it, she and others, um, and I can tell you from my, my personal experience and working with clients uh, for a number of decades now, but she'll tell a story. The reason I bring her up is she, she's been doing specifically food addiction for longer than I have. And um, so she has said, David, when I interviewed her, she said, David, let me tell you. She says, there are people who have been, quote, unquote, food sober, meaning they weren't eating their trigger, they weren't eating their uh, substance of abuse, whatever it may be. And they took the one bite. They had the one piece, the whatever. 
and they had been food sober for 20 years, and then they weren't either ever again or for years after that one bite. Now, is this some kind of super scare tactic? Is this just how it is for everybody? No, not, almost nothing is how it is for everybody. But there are, there is a continuum here. Sometimes, that's why the moderation in all things drives me nuts. Moderation in all things. Someone's been food sober for 20 years. Shouldn't they be able to have a piece of cake? Some can't. And if you can't, know thyself. Know what, you know, works for you and what doesn't eventually. And don't get me wrong. Someone listening to this right now has had no experience with this. I, I in no way, shape, or form expect anybody to know what is going to be okay and what isn't for them. That's something that we work with our, our clients if uh, we even need to go down this road. Because not everybody that comes to me is, a, is an addict. It's not, it's not how it works. But for those where we are, you know, exploring this, where we are exploring the aspect of, you know, it's kind of a question I'll ask is answer yes or no to this. And this is like the most simple way, but answer yes or no to this. I am someone who compulsively overeats or engages in compulsive food behavior, yes or no. Now, there's other criteria. There's questionnaires. You know, there's the Yale food addiction scale. There's all these things that you can go through, you know, kind of out on the street, working, you know, just giving someone uh, a, a kind of a, a quick idea on whether they might need to address this. Um, that's, a, that's a good framework to kind of come from. Yes or no. Compulsive, when we're looking at, you know, I am someone who compulsively overeats or engages in compulsive food behavior. Compulsive in this, in this framework is engaging in behaviors that yield consistently negative results, negative outcomes, yet we engage in them anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not rational. And compulsive eating is irrational, but that's what makes one of the things that makes it compulsive. And if it's Mm -hmm. true for someone, if they answer yes to that, then we're going to need to at least look. And again, it doesn't mean that the person then all of a sudden becomes the K Shepherd client who says 20 years food sober, had a piece of cake, then was was never sober again. Okay. It doesn't mean that's the case. And it doesn't mean that the person all of a sudden goes to, again, you can't ever have anything that tastes good. You can't ever have that piece of cake. or It doesn't mean that. But we are going to have to, or we should, respectfully look at not just the trigger food, trigger processed food, but the trigger situation, the environment, the time of day, the location. Because people who pick up, which is a, you know, a phrase in addiction, people who pick up um, do so quite often in the same way with the same things at the same time of day from the same emotional trigger within reason. Um, there aren't a thousand different scenarios that typically have someone consistently picking up. There's a handful. And so it's, it's good to start to create some awareness around this um, and try to shine a light on it without in any way, shape, or form trying to add in. There's no guilt here. I mean, to me, at first, the person may feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm an addict or whatever. And I, I kind of frame it this way, triggered eater instead of addict, because triggered eater mm-hmm. uh, means there's a continuum. In my, in my view, there's a continuum. Triggered eater is like the big umbrella, and underneath that there's a continuum, user, abuser, addict. But it doesn't matter if you're user, abuser, addict. What's going on? Is it interfering with your life and with your progress? 
And if so, then we can come up with strategies. Um, we can come up with a personal abstinence plan, which doesn't mean you're now abstinent from cookies the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that. Although I'm not going to say that it for sure doesn't mean that. I'm just going to say that it doesn't automatically mean that. And it's not like we paint a broad brush and say, well, that's it. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to have to discover. The person, like you were saying, is going to have to discover and kind of figure out what works for me and what doesn't. What can I have and what not? What happens when I have the bite, the taste, the lick, the sip, the entire whatever, the cookie or whatever? Do I stop? You know, anyway, and then again, this is just, it's a big part of it. It's a, when you look at why is the obesity crisis where it is, this isn't being discussed enough. This mm -hmm. specific topic is so much bigger in our modern society than the people who could shift the needle because they have a massive platform, government, American Academy of Dietetics, health educators, Uh, United States Department of Agriculture, Food and Drug Administration. I mean, on and on. People really <laughs> yeah, the list the goes on. on this. The list goes yeah. on of people who have a huge microphone. They aren't discussing this. And gee, I wonder why. Because if they do, the things that are addictive, ultra-processed food, is big food. It's just too much money there. It doesn't yeah, mean individually think, we can't we yeah. can't take control though, because we can. Yeah, and I think actually beyond like you said the the top down approach that. Um, that I brought up earlier, that even as a culture, we're not talking about this is I think there's just so much um, shame around it still, you know, even like if it's a food addiction or whatever kind of addiction it is, there's still this stigma around being right. able to stay. And that's why I do like that you say it triggered, um, triggered eater. Is that how you phrase triggered it? Triggered eater. Yep. Triggered that's what eater. I say. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. because it is, it's so important. And again, I just encourage everyone out there to approach this with love and curiosity for yourself. This is in no way, shape or form meant to be another way for you to judge or beat up on yourself. Um, we do enough of that in our culture already. We don't need another reason to. And honestly, like going about it that way really doesn't get us anywhere. That's what keeps us on the yo-yo is the self-judgment is the berating is the, you know, um, beating up on yourself. And, you know, we, a lot of us have this um, merry-go-round in our heads of negative self-talk, and especially when we are triggered or fall off the wagon. And so the way to get off of that merry-go-round is when you find yourself in that moment, stop, pause, breathe. Hopefully you have a journal, but if you don't, just even start to ask yourself questions. What am I feeling right now? What am I thinking? You know, where, where am I with myself? And even just that little pause can be the um, sort of the precipice of, of change. Yes, and, and what I would say, too, is don't even get on the wagon. There is no wagon. Live a healthy lifestyle. What's that mean? Well, yeah, a part of living mean? a healthy lifestyle is, <laughs> right, what, what is that? Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, what's happened is in the last 50 to 70 years, maybe 100, um, real food has been crowded out by ultra-processed food. We used to, for tens of thousands of years, we as a species ate real food. Up until maybe 100 years ago, it was almost exclusively real food. Real food, my working definition of real food, um, 
And again, I was saying, get off, just don't even get on the wagon. There's no wagon, because if you get on the wagon, you, you can get off the wagon. What's that mean? Well, everybody knows what that means. If you were to poll your listeners and say, do you, what do you believe on the wagon means? It means that you are doing something for a period of time. You know, you are abstaining from a period of time. You are, you know, um, you are engaged in some exercise of willpower or whatever for a period of time. You know, um, I don't think of it at all that way. But when it comes to, um, I think of it as we just, you know, live a healthy lifestyle. And as a part of that, we need to eat more real food. So what's happened is 60 to 90 percent of what adults eat in the United States is ultra-processed food. 60 to 90 percent. So that is not what we have propagated our species on. That is not how we have gotten to the point that we are now. It's only happened in the last hundred-ish or years ago or within the last hundred years. Um, You can argue 50, 70, 100, whatever it is. But for tens of thousands of years, we ate real food. So ultra-processed food has crowded it out. So what we want to do is 60 to 90% intake ultra-processed food. We want to make progress. You don't have to flip a switch. You don't have to do any of this. I mean, first of all, everyone listening is an adult and retains agency over their decisions. No one, you know, can tell you what you have to do with regard to this. Do what you want to do. Do what serves you, you know, and and honor yourself. Um, you know, hold your, you know, honor your expectations, you know, not someone else's expectations. So it doesn't matter what Dave Greenwald says, you know, it may be best. Do what's best for you. But if you want better, then we want to shift things to more real food. What we want to do is increase real food and start crowding out ultra-processed food, getting back to more so, closer to, you know, the way we've eaten for tens of thousands of years. So my working definition of real food, I've adapted from something called the NOVA food classification system. Um, It was created by a professor out of Brazil 10, 12 years ago, something like that. There are many food classification systems. This is one. Um, It's not perfect, but in my opinion, it's the best one there is right now. And it's continually being studied, and it's continually being used in research where they are studying the impact of ultra-processed food. So they're trying to – we need a definition of ultra-processed food before we can figure out what the consumption of ultra-processed food is doing to people. So I like the NOVA food classification system. My working uh, definition of real food from that is this. Real food is whole or minimally processed edible parts of plant and animal, okay, where if anything's been added, it is only whole or minimally processed ingredients commonly found in kitchens. Let me say it again. Whole or minimally processed edible parts of plant and animal where if anything's been added, It's only whole or minimally processed ingredients commonly found in kitchens. What might come to mind, Dr. May, when I say that definition as something, anything that might be real food? Oh, I mean, so real food comes from a plant. It's a whole piece of fruit or vegetable. It comes from an animal that hopefully was raised cleanly. (laughs) <laughs> and healthy right, right. with not excess mm-hmm. antibiotics or hormones. And mm-hmm. then if it is, let's say, if it's a juice, for example, then it's 100% juice, no added sugar, or no preservatives. So none of that extra stuff added to it. 
So if you look on a food label, you should be able to read and understand and know what every ingredient is without having to find like a chemical dictionary. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, you know, retain the definition that I gave on, on real food and say a couple things that again are confusing to people because people try to dumb this down too much. You're not, by the way, I'm just saying that these two things I'm going to, I'm about to say are where others are, have tried to dumb this down. They'll say, don't eat it if it has more than five ingredients. We're just trying to give people a thumb, you know, a thumbnail, you know, kind of mm-hmm. way to look at things. I don't care if it has 50 ingredients. I mean, look, you know, if something, what if it's got 27 spices? Great. As long as they're right. minimally processed ingredients commonly found in kitchens, you know, so I don't care if it's got more than five ingredients. And some will say, don't eat it if you can't pronounce it. Well, you know what? Quinoa is kind of a weird word, you know, <laughs> and uh, some people can't pronounce quinoa. And I don't blame you. Q-U-I-N-O-A, that's weird. Come on. And so here's the, here's the thing, too. For somebody like you, Dr. May, you can pronounce all kinds of crap. Because right, I can pronounce in, all those in, crazy chemicals, but that doesn't mean you should you eat can, them. <laughs> I was going to say, so the thing is, is that don't eat it if you can't pronounce it. Well, well Dr. May goes, well, I can pronounce it. Well, I guess you, then I guess you should eat it. No, see, that doesn't work. <laughs> no. So does it have more than five ingredients? I don't care. Whether you can pronounce it, I don't care. Here's what I care about. Whole or minimally processed edible parts of plant and animal, where if anything's been added, it's only whole or minimally processed ingredients commonly found in kitchens, spices, vinegar, oils, things like that. Now, you take like a packaged marinara, tomatoes, basil, garlic, oregano, salt, da-da-da, you know, fine. You know, you might have to explore further and see if it's been, to what degree it's been processed, what was used, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, you see that on the label, real food. I don't care how many ingredients it is. Don't care if you can pronounce basil. Don't care. It's real food because it meets the definition. So, when I say eat more real food, that's what I'm talking about, and, and do your best as a part of living a healthy lifestyle and, uh, you know, getting to, you know, whatever weight you want to get to as a part of your lifestyle goals, um, eat more real food and crowd out the ultra-processed. You're never going to regret it. You're never going to mm-hmm. look back in 30 years and go, man, I wish I wouldn't have eaten real food, you know, as much as I did. <laughs> But you yeah. may have that, that regret or you may already have that regret, you know, which you, I, I want you to let go. Um, because like you said, if beating ourselves senseless was the answer, there wouldn't be anybody overweight. Because right. we're really hard yeah. on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. If that worked, then we wouldn't be having that conversation, or this conversation right, right now. So, well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being here today. This has been amazing and informative and enlightening. Tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. The easiest place, since the company name is Leanness Lifestyle University, I, I realized in all these years, that's a mouthful, two N's, two I just talk about not being able to pronounce it, you know, I mean, um, so please don't uh, look at my company that way. Well, since I can't pronounce his name, I shouldn't use it. Um, but instead, <laughs> I just make it easy and just give one location for people to go to. Just go to our website. Everything is there, the social links and everything. And it is lluniversity.com. LLUniversity.com. Again, thank you. Is there anything else we have maybe a minute left that you want to bring to the audience before we finish up? I, I just want to encourage everyone to, to go for it. Don't give up. Um, if you failed more times than you can count, you're not alone. This is, 
something that is uh, more complex than people are letting on. However, the strategies that work aren't as complex as what some may think, but they, they need to be employed. So this can be one. You can get to any healthy weight you want, no matter what your history, no matter what your family history, no matter what your genetics, no matter where you are on the hormonal profile right now, what's going on in your life, you absolutely 100% can get to any healthy weight you want if you've got the right education, strategies, and support. So I just can't encourage people enough to go for it. You can win this. Um, and I wish everyone the very best of luck no matter what direction you go. Well, thank you so much. This has been David Greenwald, everyone, and I'm Dr. Lara May, and we will catch you in the next episode. Bye. <laughs>